Natter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Nailers Natter, just talking to teachers. Hello and welcome to the third in the summer special series of Nailers Natter. And this week is a bumper episode where I am speaking with Mark McCourt. Now, listeners will know that Mark has done everything in education. He's a former teacher, an AST, head of department, senior leader, head teacher, Ofsted inspector. He's the founder of the Teacher Development Trust, creator of eMaths, and now he is the CEO of LaSalle Education. And I'm speaking to Mark about his new book, Teaching for Mastery. So a really in-depth, full and frank discussion about all the things in the Teaching for Mastery book and also a little bit wider in terms of the educational landscape. So listeners to be aware that if you are walking your dog or you listen to this in the car, that some of the language described as full and frank but uh, I think that only adds to your enjoyment of the podcast. So um, sit back, relax, take the dog for a walk, go for a run, and enjoy my conversation with Mark McCourt. Okay, hello, Mark, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Phil. Thanks for having me. No problem at all. Okay, so we're just going to get in with the gentle introduction question, which is just if you could tell listeners a little bit about your career to this point and about your new book, uh, mastery uh okay i um so very briefly i fell into teaching after being a mathematician uh did the usual stuff teacher head of maths and school leadership um and then i became a director at a company called uh, tribal group most people know tribal group better as ofsted which is one of our projects uh did lots of large-scale education projects there uh in the uk and all around the world um, including things like education for a new era in the Middle East and um, National Centre for Excellence Teaching Mathematics in the UK, loads and loads of different projects. Um, so that takes me through to about 2011, uh, and then I tried to retire, which didn't work very well. Um, and then a group of us started a new organisation, uh, LaSalle Education, with the aim of uh, bringing together large numbers of maths teachers on a very regular basis, which is one of the main things that we do now through a thing called MathsConf. Um, so that's kind of my main work that I do nowadays, though I'm also a director of several charities as well. Um, and, yeah, the book is is something that came about um, really from just writing down my own thoughts and having conversations with other educators and, um, mastery is something I've been banging on about for a really long time um, and it was increasingly the case that it was obviously being misinterpreted so I thought I'd try and set the record straight on that um, so yeah I knocked out a book which came out recently and uh, yeah so that brings us to today Perfect, perfect. And as I said at the beginning, your new book's called Teaching for Mastery, and you begin it by highlighting those that have influenced your thinking in this book. So could you just tell listeners a little bit about who these early players were and what influence did they have on the mastery model for schooling? Yeah, there, there are a bunch of really interesting people involved in mastery. Um, and actually, one of the guys, John B. Carroll, uh, who's heavily influential in the, in the mastery model, was also heavily influential in me decided to become a teacher um, I was reading Carol's work 
long before thinking about becoming a teacher. Uh, and he's really, really, really important guy in terms of cognitive science and thinking about how the human mind works. Yet hardly any educators know him at all. Um, but you know, there's, there are kind of superstars in cognitive science like uh, Sweller and Geary and the Bjorks and so on. But actually, John B. Carroll, I think, would be my all-time hero in that domain. Anyway, his, his work uh, led me to read other people's stuff, including Benjamin Bloom. And, and then it was kind of like a jigsaw coming together of, of different, different pieces of work led me to reading a thing called The Winnetka Plan, which was written in 1921 uh, by a guy called Carlton Washburn. Um, and Carlton, who was a superintendent in uh, this city, Winnetka, in Illinois, Carlton had come up with this different model of working, this mastery model, um, as an antidote to conveyor belt approaches. And it just absolutely fascinated me, gripped me. And then I started looking at the history of it and where it had been used in different places around the world and what the impact of it was. So really, Carlton Washburn's the guy that kicked this off. Uh, around about 100 years ago, he, he formally kicked it off in 1921, but he'd been doing stuff in... 1914, 1915 with Mary Ward and Frederick Burke at that time. Um, and then what's really lovely as well is that if you dig into Carlton's work, you actually find that he didn't come up with this model and he was just copying a model that was sort of, uh, popularised by Aristotle. And I loved finding that out because I'm a very big fan of Aristotle. Um, so the fact that all those little paths ended up leading to Aristotle two and a half thousand years ago. It was, it was pretty neat. Um, so yeah, they, 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 those, those key players in mastery, John B. Carroll got me into teaching and Carlton Washburn kept me in teaching because I think if I had to go down the route of conveyor belt approaches to, to education, I think I'd have been switched off in year one and would have just left never got anywhere as a teacher but this model of actually maybe we could do something different here where every single child attains very very high outcomes um, instead of just a few that are considered to be i don't know mathematically gifted uh, or whichever subject you're talking about and that's an interesting point to pick up on uh, here, Mark, in terms of, uh, it's a question I'm going to maybe ask later so I can just let it percolate for a little bit, but um, in terms of this teaching for mastery and not just being for maths, am I right in thinking that Carlton Washburn was a scientist? Is that, is that correct? Yeah, it's not about maths at all. Um, Washburn was an interesting guy. He, he, was a, he was a failed businessman and a failed doctor, medical doctor. And he really just took a teaching job because he had nothing else he could do. And his mother was involved in education. Um, and the school he was able to work at, this really deprived school in La Puente, California, um, it was kind of the days where teachers, you, you know, you weren't qualified to be a teacher. You didn't do any training. Or anything. Um, you were just a college graduate. And you taught all sorts of things. So Carlton taught science, but he did also teach other, uh, other subjects as well. He taught bits of sport. Um, he taught bits of home economics. Um, he taught gardening um, at this school as well. So he had a really broad range of experiences there. And, and that was very helpful for Carlton because one of the things he noticed was that 
maybe a child who'd be who he had been told this child's not very bright, you know, they're not very good in science or mathematics or grammar. He then saw them as a sports teacher or a gardening teacher excelling. And that was that was an important thing for him to realise, oh, hang on a minute. This kid is bright or is talented. It's just something has gone wrong in their mathematics or science or grammar or whatever it was. Um, so yeah, he was he was a generalist really. Um, though his 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 uh, graduate degree was was in medicine, and then he was the first ever he was the first ever person to take a PhD in education later on, which I thought was quite impressive as well. Um, the new the new University of Stanford, which has obviously gone on to become quite an important establishment, but at the time was brand new. So it's a fascinating character, Carlton. I, I could talk about him forever, so you should stop me. <laughs> no, no, not at all. And I really enjoyed reading the, the, the first chapter. I really enjoyed reading the whole of the book, but the, the first chapter particularly in terms of tying up all these names that maybe I'd heard of, but putting them together and, like you said, going back to Aristotle. Um, and another of those um, names was Benjamin Bloom, who was was integral to my teacher training at the sort of the, the you know late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and I don't know if this is fair to say, but he may have had a little bit of a mixed reception recently. But uh, last week I was talking to Tom Gusky, who said that he actually worked with him in, uh, in his early career. So how influential was Bloom's work in, in Mastery Model? Oh, enormously. Um, Bloom had the ability and the reach. You know, if you, there was a, there was a, like a chart of um, important educators released in the early 1980s, and Bloom was always at the top of this as being really, really influential, important educators. So he had the reach to be able to um, not only spread the word of Carlton's model, but also to test its efficacy in different jurisdictions at different times in history. Um, and th- there was kind of a, I always think of uh, Benjamin Bloom and, and Tom Gusky's work as like a handing over a baton uh, in a relay race. Um, you know, Tom, Tom knows more about mastery than any other person on this planet, as far as I'm aware. Um, he's, he's incredibly insightful into mastery models and did hugely important work in the 80s and 90s, much you know, much of that with and influenced by, by Bloom. Um, and the, the trouble, of course, with Bloom is, is he then also writes this um, this, this book on on these taxonomies, um, and actually his book on classification and taxonomies is a really interesting book, and it's a nice piece of work, well written, and then some, I don't know some charlatan in the 80s um, trying to present Bloom's work in a presentation presents Bloom's work as, as this simplified pyramid and just you know some very short bullet points basically um, and of course the pyramid is, is nonsense and what that led to was a lot of people saying well yeah, this pyramid is such complete and utter nonsense that Bloom's work must be nonsense but it's just not true and it's just bloody lazy to to write off a man whose work is hugely important decades and decades of work write off his work because some idiot produced a diagram summarizing his work um but of course when you you know you're, you're talking about your own teacher training I imagine your teacher training involved 
that bloody pyramid, right? A picture of that pyramid with just those words on. Um, but it has very, very little to do with blue, that pyramid. Oh, I mean, it's, it's, it's a topic that I return to over and over again on this podcast, but yes, very much so. Pyramids and the idea that uh, a good teacher can teach anything and the idea that the knowledge is in the room and it's just my job to facilitate um, people to be able to find it. Um, yes, it was quite a, quite a progressive time. I spoke, I spoke to Michael Young about um, sort of teacher training in the, the early 2000s. It was quite, quite an interesting time. Yeah, well, it was... Um... The 2000s in particular were, were the height of the cult of pedagogy at the expense of didactics, you know, so focusing on how the teacher acts and how they are rather than the technical detail of subjects. And the technical detail of subjects really, really matters if you want to teach that subject. Um, but this, this thing, this you know, empowerment agenda that a teacher should be free to do whatever they want and... Every, the only thing that matters is that you feel happy and comfortable about what you're doing. You think, well, surely the only thing that matters is whether the things you do result in the child learning something. I don't really care if you're happy and fluffy. I care about whether the children that are in front of you learn things. So that, that cult of pedagogy that has been around now for at least 20 years, it's still really strong today. Um, it's incredibly prevalent today, even though people maybe think it it has been alleviated a bit, but it hasn't. There has been no great um, resurgence in the importance of didactics and technical detail of subjects. It, it just isn't happening. If you look at teacher training around the country, almost no ITE involves any substantial subject knowledge training. You know, even some of the best ITE institutions in the country. Um, so in terms, it differs from subject to subject. But for mathematics, uh, Nottingham would be a really, really good institution for ITE. Um, Cambridge is okay. Um, but even those courses, where, even where you get the best courses, the number of days spent on subject knowledge and what is then done on those days on subject knowledge is really lacking. There's no grounding for, for going into teaching. But yeah, anyway, that's a, no, I, a I big could, issue that we can't solve just now. No, I was going to say, I could definitely go down into that um, particular <laughs> rabbit hole as, as I'm the person responsible for uh, ITT and its myriad of different forms uh, at the school I work at. So it's probably better if I steer clear offering any opinions on that. But moving back to another thing that was very much part of teacher training and the way that we thought about education when I trained as a teacher is this idea and I think it's something that you've talked about in the book about this conveyor belt approach to curriculum so I can remember thinking about lesson planning to make sure that I cover this then that's done right let's move on to the next thing cover that and get through the curriculum and make sure I've covered everything and if I do that then everything will be okay so I guess the question is what what is the, the conveyor belt approach and why do you think it has been so prevalent and maybe continues to be so prevalent um so, where it came from, I, I think, is we never had a national curriculum. Um, you know, schools have been around for about 180 years. Um, and generally, schools did whatever they wanted to do. There was a lot of teacher autonomy. Up until 1989, pretty much teachers were allowed to do what they thought was right for the pupils in front of them. And then we have this national curriculum introduced, and... When the national curriculum was introduced in 1989, there was the creation of 20 national curriculum levels. 
which later became 10, later became 8, and then in 2010 were, were kind of scrapped. But these 20 national curriculum levels were introduced. And everyone, once you introduce 20 national curriculum levels that are supposed to be in some way related to the age of the child and how they will travel through a subject, you necessarily introduce a conveyor belt. You necessarily introduce a system that says, because these children are age five, we'll teach them the age five stuff. Because these children are aged eight, the age eight stuff, age 13, the age 13 stuff. Rather than saying, I have an individual child in front of me. What do they know and what do they not know? Let me teach them the things they don't know based on what they do know, where they're truly at in the learning of, of a discipline. So this conveyor belt is, is, I think, a result of the introduction of the national curriculum and particularly the introduction of the national curriculum levels. Though the assessment group, the TGAT group that was set up, um, that, that resulted in these national curriculum levels didn't intend it to be used in this way, um, but it, it was a result of it. I think the conveyor belt, this idea that because a child is a certain age, you should be presenting certain material at them rather than teaching them, um, is one of the most dangerous things, one of the most damaging things that uh, uh, an education system can, can adopt. Um, the idea of age-related expectations is just utterly, utterly bonkers when you have... Um, when you have this conveyor belt because the conveyor belt moves on it just keeps moving whether you've gripped something or not um, and takes no account of, of whether you're ready to learn the next thing um, which is obviously really important in hierarchical subjects and mathematics is a hierarchical subject but loads of subjects are hierarchical loads of subjects do require a, a coherent specifically sequenced journey through them uh, for it to make sense so yeah, conveyor belt is about using the age of a child to determine what that child should be uh, having shown to them or presented at them. Whereas mastery is about understanding the individual child and then teach them, teaching that individual child the right material for that child such that they can keep building up and building up and building up. Um, and you know, there, there isn't a great deal that we ask children to learn at school. I know it might feel like that at times, but there really isn't a great deal. Um, if we go through it carefully and take the right amount of time to teach children each idea properly. Um, and that, that would get away from this, the phrase you used a moment ago, Phil, that, you know, keeping up with the curriculum. The number of teachers I've heard say that to me over the decades I've been doing this. I have to keep up with the curriculum. And you just, you know, a very quick pause of that teacher, you say, is that why you wanted this job? Is that why you signed up to this? You know, when when you were a young person thinking, what will I do for a living? Did you want to spend your career keeping up with a curriculum? I mean, it's just nuts. And, and nobody does want to do that for a living. When you actually ask people what you want to do for a living, they then talk about children. They talk about learning and they talk about helping people. And they talk about taking, you know, in, in my case, taking a child to the point of being able to be like a mathematician or a musician or an artist or an actor or whatever it is. Nobody says the thing I want to do when I drive into work every day is for me to keep up with the curriculum that, that is of no use to me anyway. No, and, and it was, that was a deliberate choice of words because that's a highlighted and post-it note and goodness knows what part of me reading the book was when I read, I read that and I just thought, yes, 
I can absolutely relate to having said that numerous times, uh, you know, even up to quite recently. You know, yeah. I think of de- departmental meetings of, well, I've got to cover all of this. I've got to get through all of this. I've got to keep up, you know. Yeah, I remember when I was when I was a trainee teacher, because I, I'd had a career before, so I was a little bit older and, um, you know, I kind of knew what I wanted to do. I remember as a trainee teacher uh, having an observation and it was I was doing something about angle facts, you know, like we do all different bunch of facts in a lesson. Uh, and the guy at the end was saying, or the guy that was my mentor, he was saying, what do you think of that? And what are you going to do next lesson? And I said, oh, next lesson. I don't, I don't think they've gripped that next lesson. I'm going to. I'm going to keep going with this until they grip it. And he said to me, he said, oh, you, you can't, you know, that objective's done. You need to move on to the next one. <laughs> I just thought, you're a, you're a fucking idiot. It's like, what are you talking about? And this guy was my mentor. And I remember thinking, if I was still in industry, if I was still in the private sector, and I had spotted something that wasn't working and then said to my mentor, we need to fix that, in industry, someone would go, yeah, absolutely, that's what you should do. I just couldn't, I couldn't believe that this person was being put in a position to be a mentor of a new teacher. I just thought, you are, you know, you're really, really thick if this is what you're telling me to do. Um, and, you know, I see that happening a lot where people who are in those positions are just telling new entrants to the profession all sorts of hogwash so yeah anyway I could no no that's another of my favorite parts and i might have this quote wrong but obviously i've listened to both your podcasts you've done with craig barton and i think there's a bit quite early on i think it's the second one where you start talking about the more you got promoted and the more you moved up the more you realized that the person above you didn't actually know any more than you did <laughs> or knew what you did and simon cox and i often sort of <laughs> regurgitate and use that quote at various intervals but about ourselves as well that you know, <laughs> who are these people over here? And they don't actually know it any more than you do. Yeah, it's a weird thing. I mean, obviously that's true in all in all careers, right? You know, every because you have to learn how to be how to do the job. So every head teacher is a really bad head teacher in their first year, um, and that's fine. That's okay. The important thing is that they that they recognise that they're not a good head teacher in their first year and that they recognise they need to keep getting better. And then you can look at those people and think, yeah, good on you, you know, you're, you're the kind of person I'm happy to work with. Um, the, the weird thing is when you come across people in your career who, you know, it seems that the thing they are in the job for is to tell other people to do things when you know they aren't bright enough to be telling you to do that. Um, and teaching is a I've had lots of different I've worked in lots of different environments and lots of different industries and I've never experienced uh, an, a different profession where uh, bullying among, amongst adults is so rife I've, I've never seen anything like it um, you know, I, you know, I remember a very unhinged deputy head teacher I worked with when I was a new a fairly new teacher, maybe first or second year of teaching. And they could not write a timetable. And they, they, it was just beyond them, intellectually beyond them. And normally, you know, in a, in a profession, normally what happens is you say, oh, I can't do this job, someone help me out. Or, you know, let's swap roles, what we're doing, whatever. That's what normal 
normal sort of industry would do. But instead, what this person did was disguise their incompetence by bullying everyone around them. It's a really, really weird experience. Um, and yeah, th- those little experiences of, hang on a second, you're, you're my boss and you haven't got a clue what you're doing. They keep happening over and over and over and over. Um, it's true of everyone, you know, it's, it's true of all professions. It's just how you handle it. And are really smart head teachers, and there are loads of really smart head teachers. But really smart head teachers recognise the things they're not good at, and then they surround themselves with people who are good at those things, and you know make sure that the the group has all of the competences that they need. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a it's an odd sensation to realise. Hang on, a minute, you don't know what you're talking about either. <laughs> and that was from like PGCE tutor all the way through to you know the, the end of my career in schools it just kept happening over and over and over and it's one of one of the things like nowadays one of the things i do is if, if people invite me to um then i'll go and speak to their schools or whatever um and that's a, an odd an odd world to exist in because it kind of puts you in the world of education consultancy and i'm not an education consultant um but it puts puts you in that world, and there's, there's so there's so much so much that's uh, in that world that's simply snake oil being passed around. And, you know, that, that's that's sort of the epitome of uh, okay. So you've not been able to do any of those things: teach, train, or inspect. What do you do next? Well, go off and consult. I'm, I'm going to get real flack for this now. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not in that camp of the only people who can speak about teaching are people that are in a classroom teaching. It's, it's just a, it's a ridiculous sentiment. Um, I, I think that really, you know, it, it is a mark of professions that they will draw from expertise wherever they can. They recognize expertise. And a lot of people um, out there have great expertise and they're sharing that with schools. It's fantastic. Um, but, you know, for every one of them, for every one of those experts out there who are just being an external other, someone to draw uh, knowledge from, for every one of those, there are an army of, or there is an army of um, pontificating consultants who, who, you know, perhaps weren't that successful in teaching themselves. Um, so yeah, it, it is a very fine line. To, but you know, you can't. You can't cut off external expertise. It's a really, really important thing. Um, you know, the guys I was talking about earlier, has, had I not been able to, fair enough, he was dead, but I still drew on the expertise of Washburn. And had I not been able to do that as a teacher, I wouldn't have stayed as a teacher. So, mm. yeah, that, that, ex, that propositional knowledge is really important as well as uh, the strategic knowledge you have of actually doing the job day to day. Yeah. No, absolutely. Right, just pulling it back around to the book again. So if I can just ask a little bit about what do you consider to be the core elements of a mastery model? Um, so the, the the model is a cyclical model, uh, and that cycle should not be broken, otherwise the efficacy of, it, of the model falls apart. Um, and within that cyclical model, um, there are lots of 
tools that are used to work out what's going on with pupils at any given moment. I really liked in the 1980s, uh, mastery was generally referred, in the UK, generally referred to as diagnostic teaching. And I like that phrase, diagnostic teaching. I, I sometimes use that and I sometimes use responsive teaching, the, the kind of synonyms for mastery for me. So when you're when you're in this cycle, the first thing you've got to do, you're about to teach someone a new idea. So the first thing you've got to do is work out, are you ready to learn this new idea? So one of the key elements of mastery is, is diagnostic pre-assessment. You know, why would you teach someone something new if they didn't have the underpinning knowledge, underpinning prerequisites to, to learn this new thing? Um, so we do that to begin with. And then if they're not ready to learn it, you, you don't move on. You sort out those prerequisites. Um, but when you are ready to move on, then teacher instruction. Instruction is really important in mastery. Um, you, know, you, you are revealing this body of knowledge over, over a child's time at school, carefully revealing it at the right time. And we need to instruct children such that they grip new ideas, they make meaning of new ideas. Um, so the, the instruction has to be really high quality. And, and by that, I mean, that the group instruction that you do as a teacher has to pick up every single child. Yet if you watch the teaching of, I can only speak for mathematics really, but if you watch the teaching of mathematics in England, nearly all maths teachers are teaching mathematics in the way they were taught mathematics, which is not what our job is. Our job's not to teach mathematics in the way we want to learn mathematics. Our job is to teach mathematics in such a way that every single child in front of us makes meaning of that mathematics. So high-quality group-based initial instruction got to be highly varied, lots of different models, metaphors, examples, lots of batting to and fro between you and the child to make sure what you're saying is being received, that they're, they're picking up the meaning. And if one child doesn't understand one metaphor or one example or one model then we show them a different one and a different one and a different one until they do make meaning of what it is we're talking about um, and then when they're ready to work you, you, you have them working on highly varied carefully structured tasks constantly assessing them constantly speaking to them and when I say assessing children I, I just mean asking questions um, so talking to the children looking at their work hearing their conversations um, interacting with them so you're, you're trying to spot any moment where a child needs um, remediation. And then in mastery, what we call that is corrective instruction. So whenever you spot a child there and then in the moment, a child needs some help. You do this, this corrective instruction, which again is about different models, metaphors and exam examples, mindful of how you taught it previously, um, picking them up and, and making sure they can move forward at this moment in time. So assessment and mastery is happening in real time. It's not about marking books where the work was done a couple of weeks ago. Um, and then when you've, when you've done that activity, you, you continue to talk to them, watch them, look at their questions, have conversations. So you're continually assessing them, formatively assessing them. Um, and whilst, whilst you're helping children you need corrective instruction. Other children can be working on enrichment tasks. So really, that's that's what the mastery model is made up of: is, is initial diagnostic, group-based instruction, um, regular formative assessment, corrective instruction, and enrichment tasks. And all of those things come together in this this cyclical model um, that you're you're stuck in 
until every child grips everything you're trying to get them to learn. Um, there's a, there's an element that's not captured in the cycle itself um, because all of that is absolutely fine. You can do all this great stuff as a teacher, but the element that's not captured in that that cycle is pupil effort. Um, none of it works unless the pupils deliberately expend effort. So, you know, inculcating or creating an environment where where all of your pupils work really hard is super important in the, in the mastery approach as well. No, absolutely, absolutely. And again, that was a theme that was touched on in uh, the one that you, you did with Craig in terms of uh, how important that that pupil effort is but i probably don't want to go down that road because <laughs> some of those uh, I, whilst i agreed with a lot of what you said there i think uh, yeah some of that might be a little bit controversial as well i never say anything controversial <laughs> no absolutely right now this is going to be a big question mark and i know that you can't possibly summarize the entire of cognitive science but chapter three does a really good job of doing that and it discusses learning from cognitive science so if you had to come up with, you know, what are the key lessons maybe we should take from that field? Um, I think if, if I had to summarise the whole of Chapter 3, which is a review of cognitive science and education, I think it would be teach for memory. Um, and really that's, that's what all of Chapter 3 is about. It is about when you're doing these things in the classroom with, with children, what things can we do that will ensure the stuff they're encountering today can be used in the future? Um, and I often use the, the phrase far transfer. Um, memory is really interesting. You know, that teacher memory is not necessarily saying that you'll be able to remember something um, because you know, we have these aspects of can you store it in the memory, but also can you get it back out of the memory? Um, the sort of storage and retrieval but then retrieval is not good enough for me either um, you know, so a lot of people are interested in can you retrieve a piece of information so you can cite that again in the future as a mathematician I'm, I'm that's really crucial that you can do that but I'm less that's, I'm less interested in can you bring to the fore a piece of information again and I'm more interested in this far transfer which is can you take a mathematical idea that you learnt about whenever in the past, sometime in the past, can you take that idea and use it today in any way you want to use it? And I often talk about this as being like, so these mathematical ideas become like tools that you can just use. and You can pull out the correct tool for the correct job and apply it to the job. Um, so this, this idea of um, something I was taught in the past where I might have been using it on certain types of examples but now in the future I can use it on a whole range of completely different things so that the problems aren't isomorphic um, so yeah if I, if I was summarizing chapter three it's teach for memory and make sure that those memories can be used in any way that is appropriate at any time in the future uh, which is a, it's a pretty big ask to do that but so much of what we, we do in schools is not designed to do that at all. So much of what we do in schools is designed for in-the-moment performance um, because schools have been – schools have fallen into the trap of thinking that everything has to be measured. 
and the part once you fall into that trap you start saying okay so that means that uh, progress in a lesson has to be measured that means that teacher performance in a lesson has to be measured and you can quantify these things in some way and you know it's just mind-numbing that belief you, you can't do either of those things it's impossible to quantify if learning has happened in, a, in an hour it's impossible to quantify is a teacher effective because you've watched them for an hour um, and because of trying to quantify those things trying to you know give them grades and scores and uh, make judgments of those that reduces the whole thing you get this sort of reductive view reductionist view of, of education and, and teaching as being about a tick list of things that you can do in a lesson and the, the one that's easy to measure is performance. So everything comes down to performance. Did they get something right in this lesson? Could they do a load of questions? Did they put their thumbs up? Did they have smiley faces? Yet performance has, is a really, really bad indicator of whether learning has happened. So not only are we sometimes avoiding the things that lead to this, this far transfer, we've also built an accountability system in this country that penalizes teaching for far transfer, which is a um, you know, really weird thing. When we're in the business, our entire business is about learning, about becoming learned, about intellectualism, about knowledge. That's our entire business. Yet we do these really, really dumb things, which just, I don't know, it strikes me as very odd that in a business about learning, we do something so thick as to say, Let's measure progress in 20 minutes. You know, who on earth ever thought, thought that that would be a good idea? You know, it's, it's just bizarre. Anyway, I, I shall not rant. No, that. no. Well, the, well yeah, and, and, and it's, still, it's still there, isn't it, lurking, and particularly, and again, this might be a controversial viewpoint, but particularly within initial teacher training, that this idea of you know 20-minute observations and monitoring progress in 20 minutes still seems to be alive and well, along with learning styles and, and goodness knows what else within yeah. some parts of uh, initial teacher training. But, you know, it's, it's very liberating, I find, that and if there are any trainee teachers listening um take it as a very liber liberating experience because if someone says to you i'm going to observe you for 20 minutes and i'm going to make a judgment of you you know that they are intellectually subnormal you know they're an absolute idiot so you don't have to care about what they think <laughs> so let them do their thing let them come and watch you go off and have their weird life that they have and then just get on with yours being happy you don't have to place any kind of importance on their beliefs so once you know that once you know oh this person's an idiot then you don't have any stress you don't have any worry you don't have to care too much about it i think it's a really liberating thing no it is it's a liberating thing for me mark as well because the host makes note uh, drop 20 minute nqc <laughs> observations <laughs> from next year's plan uh, there we go. So you see, it's CPD for me as well doing this podcast. It's, fan it's fantastic. Right now, previous guests and uh, you know, have got the option to to ask questions. Now I know that you're familiar with Ben Gordon, so he would like to ask a question, and he wanted me to discuss with you uh, mixed ability versus mixed attainment versus setting. So I know that you touch on this uh, in the book as well. So if listeners are thinking of uh, of changing, what should they be aware of? Uh <laughs> Why does this topic haunt me? Why does everyone ask me about this? 
Um, right, okay. I, so I'm a proponent of a mastery approach. So that's that's where I shall start. I shall start from the positive. Mastery approaches have really significant impact on pupil attainment. And also uh, yeah, engagement goes up as well. And pupil enjoyment rises as well. Uh, so I think it's a really good model. If you are also interested in the mastery model for teaching, for schooling, then you cannot have a mixed ability or mixed attainment model at the same time. And if you do have a mastery approach and you implement it from day one, you don't have to worry about the debate anyway because the whole thing disappears. Um, so that's where I'll start off with. Now, people then interpret that as me saying, well, that means he doesn't like mixed ability and mixed attainment teaching. Um, well, I'm just saying it doesn't work with mastery, and it doesn't. But mastery has this wonderful result of homogenizing everyone, lifting everyone up to the top so that everyone becomes learned, and this idea of groupings disappears. I think that, I think that aiming, and there are lots of schools, more schools than ever this year, are aiming to move to mixed ability, uh, aiming to move to mixed attainment. Um, they generally don't understand the difference between those words, but hey-ho. Um, so there's loads of schools are making that their goal to move to mixed ability. And I'm going to suggest that is a really, really bad goal to have. Because if your goal is to move to mixed ability, or if your goal is to move to setted classes or grouped classes, if your goal is any of those things, what you are doing is you are saying that we believe that children have some kind of magical flair or gift that was given to them that make good learners and not so good learners. And I just reject that. I don't believe that that's the case at all. And I believe that if your goal is to move to setted classes or your goal is to move to mixed ability, what you're saying is we think it's the children. We think it's something about them that We'll have mixed ability because there is mixed ability. We'll have setted classes because there are different tiers of children. Rather than seriously stepping back and saying, maybe it's us, maybe it's our profession, maybe it's our schooling, maybe it's the teachers, maybe it's the quality of the education. Because I think every child can learn everything. And the reason we end up with an enormous attainment range at aged 11, so about seven years attainment range at age 11, um, and that attainment range, you know, just gets worse and worse and worse. The reason for that is not because some children are somehow naturally gifted or have some great flair that they've been you know, bestowed upon them. It's because some children were lucky enough to encounter really good education and some children weren't. And that's what we should look at. We should step back and say, why the hell is it that we have 11-year-olds who can't count to 10? That is not because of that 11-year-old. It's not because of some innate ability or inability. It's because their education was crap. And if someone didn't sort out the fact that a child can't count to 10 by the time they're aged 11, that's what we should look at. Let's go back and fix that. Let's go back and fix it from day one so that by the time we arrive at age 11, all of those children are mathematically literate and able to cope with the secondary education. So one of the 
so there's a there's a kind of misconception about me <laughs> that uh, because people you know will rant on at me if I if I just type the words mixedability into Twitter it's like letting off a little bomb and then my DMs go crazy with people sending me all sorts of abuse um, because people are thinking what I'm saying is that teaching children in mixedability classes is the wrong thing to do. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the assumption that children are differently capable, that there are good learners and bad learners, that there are those who can learn well and those who cannot learn well, that that assumption is fundamentally flawed and is abhorrent. Um, and when you asked me about Bloom earlier, you know, what was Bloom's great influence on mastery? One of the things that Bloom did with, with Washburn's work um, in the early 1960s, along with John B. Carroll, um, they wrote about the fact that all children can learn well given the right conditions. So that's kind of fundamental to mastery. Mm-hmm. Um, so the reason that people think I'm against mixed classes or setted classes or whatever it is, is because they're mishearing the message. It's the assumption that children can't learn well. That's what I hate. I, I find that just disgusting that any educator could hold that view. Um, so there we go, little rant. Uh, that, that I should also say that, because I'm, ver- I'm a very pragmatic kind of guy, uh, I should also say that right now as we sit here today, the gap is massive. The attainment gap is massive at age 11. Um, so I can't just pontificate and say, we should get every child to learn everything because there are a bunch of 11-year-olds who haven't. What should we do about it? Right, well, you can set the classes and go off on a mastery cycle. So you homogenize them as closely as you possibly can, go off on the mastery cycle, start where every single child is, start from the true point that those children are at and build them up. So there's a model that you could you could adopt and I think is a really good model. It's what, it's what I would espouse. Um, or what you could do, is you could say, well, you know, we, we might have a really small school. We haven't got, uh, you know, if you've got 200 kids, it's pretty easy to homogenize the classes. It really is. And if someone tells you it isn't, it's because your deputy head can't timetable. They should probably go off and do something else with their life. Um, but maybe your school is really small and you can't homogenize the classes. and you, You'd still end up with a four-year attainment gap or whatever it is. Or maybe you just think um, we don't want to do that. There's loads of reasons why you don't, you, why people won't want to set their classes. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to have mixed classes. Um, okay, fine, have mixed classes, uh, but you've got to do it properly. So, so in setting, the proper way of doing it, the, the right, most effective way of doing it is to do this mastery cycle I'm talking about. In mixed classes, you've got to do that properly as well. You can't just say, we're going to do mixed classes and we're still going to have a conveyor belt. Because that's disastrous. The reason there's a seven-year attainment gap is because that's what's been going on. So then you need a really good mixed ability um, or mixed attainment model. Um, and there are loads of those that exist. Uh, my favorite ever was uh, GAME, uh, which stands for Graded Assessment in Mathematics. Um, it was just a lovely project. Uh, and Margaret Brown was behind that. Margaret's just a towering intellect. Um, Really, really lovely project, really well designed. And there's a model where if your group is truly mixed and it can span years and years of attainment, there's a model where you can have really effective mixed attainment teaching um, because the design of the model 
is really carefully put together, very well thought out, very well supported. Um, so you can do it. You can, you can take a mastery model and have setting. You can have game and do mix. There are others as well, of course. Um, but what tends to happen is instead of either of those things, instead of people doing setting really well or mixability really well, what people do is they set or they have mixed mixed ability and still do a conveyor belt. And you think, well, you're kind of missing the point here. You, you can't just say what we'll do is do this approach but do it badly. Um, and that's one of the reasons that the research around the difference between setting, grouping, uh, streaming, mixed attainment, mixed ability, that's why the research is so dodgy because it takes no account of the quality of teaching that's going on. Absolutely no account. It takes no account of the subject, whether they're hierarchical or not, and takes no account of teacher quality. And if you've got a study on on grouping types in mathematics that takes no account of teacher quality, it's not worth the paper it's written on, and it was a waste of the grant money. So, you know, there are really, really good ways of doing both setted, I'd say mastery, and really good ways of doing mixability, I'd say game. Um, and then there are really bad ways of doing both of those things as well, the worst being age-related expectations on the mm. conveyor belt model. Yeah. Um, so anyway, there you go. No, that's, per that's, that's perfect. some of Ben's questions. Well, I, I can't speak for Ben, but it's perfectly segued, hopefully, into the next question. So one of my favourite topics, as listeners will know, is implementation. And you've touched on, I think you used the word dodgy there, to say that you know sometimes people take a particular idea you know, implement it quite quickly without consideration of exactly why they're doing it or how to do it. So I guess the question I'm coming round to is, you talk about implementation and you talk about embedding the mastery model for schools that want to change their current model. So what advice would you uh, have for leaders looking to begin this? And, and you've used the words long and complex process, and I think that's quite important. Yeah, it is. It is long. So the first bit of advice is just take your time. You know, it's this knee-jerk reaction thing that happens in education all the time, we all know it's really harmful. Initiatives don't help. Knee-jerk reactions to them don't help. So take your time. Think about your school, your pupils, the makeup of your staff and their competences. What skills do they have? What abilities do they have? What's the demographic of it, of your staff? What are their past experiences? You know, So if you've got staff that have been teaching highly homogenized classes for 20 years, well, Surely you know that switching them on to non-homogenized classes just with no preparation will be disastrous. So take a really long period of time. Think very carefully about the makeup of your your staff. Uh, and also think about what your community wants as well. You know, School communities have a lot of say in how those schools are run. They should have. So think about what, what the parents of those children want and why they're sending those children, their children to your school. And then when you've made a decision, so if your decision is, um, I would like it to be, uh, your decision would be, let's move over to a mastery cycle, a mastery way of, of working, fine. So year one, what are we going to do? Well, year one should be, let's not change anything. So everything stays exactly the same. but So the, the pupil's experience is going to be the same. But whilst that's happening, because that creates no additional workload for the, the staff, they're, they're doing something they're used to, they're rolling out the same model, they're working in a very comfortable way. Whilst that's going on, what we'll then ask the staff to do is start engaging in 
professional development about this cycle and what we want to move towards. So learning about it, learning about the pedagogic choices, the the way in which the model of the cycle works, the resources we would need, the way in which classes would need to be grouped. Doing all of that learning to begin with. And then in the second year, taking some of those elements and starting to try some of those elements carefully, slowly, and, and observing what happens when you do start to introduce some of those elements. So, for example, it might be you want in the second year to start introducing the idea of diagnostic testing before moving on to a topic, if you're not already doing that. Okay, well, what impact did that have? How did it change um, our preparation time? Was there something additional that the teachers had to learn to do that? Was there additional work that came out of doing it? So on and so on. Um, and you can, you can move a, a model of schooling um, over a, a course of several years. So Carlton started the Winnetka plan in 1921, and it was at full implementation by 1927. So, you know, six years. Um, when Singapore pivoted its model of education in the 1980s, again, they were thinking, okay, 10-year process. Um, you know, and they're still in that 10 they do this 10-year cycle of reviewing their system. Um, so you can move it over a long period of time. Of course, what that, needs is, what that means is you need a head teacher and, and also you know, other senior people in schools with long-term vision and, and head teachers and managers who are not afraid of, of being out of fashion because you know, if you want to plan for the long term, the thing you can guarantee is you will, you will be out of fashion when you're doing it um, so it's it's about being brave enough to do that there are plenty of head teachers that are brave enough to do that plenty of head teachers who who think the only thing that matters is what works let's do the thing that works and let's not worry about crazy initiatives and diktats that come out um, every single year we'll just stick to doing these very slow careful things um, so yeah recognizing how difficult and complex the process is taking the right amount of time to do it making sure all of the teachers that work for you buy into it it's another reason why you should take a long time to do it you need to recognize that if you're running a school today the, the staff that make up that school right now at this minute they work there for a reason so if you're about to fundamentally move to some some different approach you know maybe maybe you're currently uh Maybe you're currently doing lots of mixed ability and you want to move to highly homogenized classes. Announcing that, taking the staff with you, trying to get them to buy into the reasons for doing it, but also giving room and space for staff to say, actually, I don't agree with that. We're, you know, we're at odds here. And what I'm going to do during this implementation phase over the next couple of years is reverse myself out into a career where I'm uh, a school where I'm happy with my career and that gives the school plenty of time to plan for human resourcing and bringing in people that do subscribe to that way of working um, trying trying to implement a model where the the staff don't agree with it is always disastrous I'm seeing loads of schools this year that I, I know loads of schools that from September so in a couple of weeks time are going to say to all of their staff we're now mixed ability for example and the staff just fundamentally disagree with that move well that leads to a bunch of staff who, who who don't want to do it who feel bad about their job aren't up for working in that way and then you you just guarantee lowering standards for 
years and years of children whilst the changes happen. Uh, whereas if you plan for it and you're honest, you're you know, completely upfront with the people that are going to work there, do work there, and say this is what we're going to do, and you're respectful of the fact that they are a professional as well, and if they want to reverse themselves out and work somewhere else that fits with their values and their goals, you know, giving them space and time to do that. It's rare to see that happening in schools, but I think it's really important to do that. No, absolutely. I think it's great advice for any kind of implementation, all the steps that you've talked about there. And and for listeners, you know, obviously we are coming up to, well, in a few weeks, the beginning of term again. And it's it's worth pointing out that you are allowed to have a start of a term without a new initiative. Yeah, yeah, indeed. You know, I mean, it seems to be de rigueur now to have at least one or maybe two inset days. So you find discussions around senior leadership tables of, well, we have to have something to launch because otherwise what are we going to do with these two days? Yeah, wouldn't it be great if the inset day at the start of the year was the head teacher? Everyone sat in the hall, head teacher comes up and stands at the podium at the start, claps their hand and goes, right, we all know what we're doing, don't we? Have a good day, guys. <laughs> That'd be brilliant. It'd be amazing. But for some reason, people think they have to say, new school year, new approach, new whatever. Um, but yeah, it would be nice if there was some continuity and consistency. Um, you know, it's, that's that's why it's nice when we get secretaries of state for education who, you know, do nothing at all. There's nothing better than a completely incompetent secretary of state for education you know, who just doesn't touch the system. That, that's brilliant. If you get that for a few years, it's great. So we have some stability. So. I'll get flagged for that as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll move on nicely to uh, part five. So we're looking at the, the chapter on phasing learning. Um, again, one of the things that I was fascinated with your previous podcast was around when you talked about learning episodes. So could you just explain to listeners what you mean by a learning episode? Yeah, so I just mean whatever period of time it takes to move from encountering a, a, an entirely novel idea that you know nothing about to being able to fully understand that idea. So I just count that as a learning episode. Um, and they are completely fluid. They take, you know, those learning episodes will take as long as they take, which is something that's missing in conveyor belt approaches to education. So key to mastery is when, when people say, you know, how long should you teach the children idea X for? And the answer to that is always the right amount of time. Um, so learning episodes are just how long it takes you to go from being novice to being able to understand an idea. Um, and they, they might be five minutes, they might be three weeks, they might be 10 years, they might never end. Um, so I, I think that ideas mature and uh, take a period of maturation. Of course, in schools at the moment, what, what most people consider to be a learning episode is a timetable of lesson. Mm. And they take that as the unit of learning which, you know, is, is absurd. You know, if, if every idea took precisely one hour to learn, it, uh, that would be extremely lucky. Um, and everyone knows that's absurd. And everyone knows that learning happens over time, not, not in a moment in time. But this, this, I, this whole conveyor belt thing and, and this um, trying to measure progress in 20 minutes thing has led to the unit of time being warped into a lesson instead of a learning episode mm. so yeah that's what i mean by that phrase and it's interesting as well in terms of um, the cognitive science stuff that you talked about before that there is a danger of that becoming a bit of a checklist that almost every lesson must start with retrieval practice for example um whereas i know you've talked previously about well yes retrieval practice is useful but perhaps at the end of a learning episode which is not constrained or defined by the parameters of a lesson 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is what always happens, and it's it's exactly it's it's really funny that the people who some of the people who are the most critical of Benjamin Bloom, you know, say his work was complete bollocks. That pyramids utter nonsense. Um, just taking sound bites. Some of those people are the same people who are reducing really complex ideas to bullet points on PowerPoint slides uh, and then using them as tick lists as well. Uh, I, get, I get asked all the time, um, can you tell me in a nutshell what your book says? I say, no, I can't. That's the point of a book. It is difficult. It's complex. It's a big idea. You can't make them into little pithy ideas. And people are doing this with all sorts of stuff. Um, so you see it with retrieval practice happening. That's oh, it's a really, really bad example, retrieval practice. Um, and you see it with all aspects of, of, of what would be covered in part three of my book. And then I'm, I've also visited schools recently uh, in the last 12 m- months. I've visited schools where they've created new lesson observation forms. <laughs> and they've been very uh, proud and triumphant of saying, hey, we've re- We've we've not got on here learning styles, so there's no there's no box that says visual auditory kinesthetic, but they've replaced them with boxes that say retrieval practice and interleaving practice. Think you bloody idiots! You're doing the same thing. You're taking this complex thing and reducing it to a tick list and trying to shoehorn someone into a pedagogy, into a, a way of being in every single lesson. Uh, so yeah, that, that happens all the time. And I guess this is a complex question, Mark, but what, why do you think that happens? Is it a lack of understanding? Is it a lack of time? Is it the pressures of... Because, I mean, they know that these ideas are now being mentioned in the research commentary behind the new inspection framework, so there's a little bit of pressure to make sure that they're included. What do you think is driving people to be able to, to, to put those checklists in? Um, oh, man, yeah. There are, lo- there are lots of elements that do that. Uh, people that know me know I talk about this 30-year cycle of education trends mm-hmm. a lot. Um, so there's something that is fashion. It really is as sad as that. It's really depressing. But a lot of it is just fashion. Um, you know, there, there are big hitters on social media or on, uh, you know, that are very well known in education. They'll say something and a lot of people think, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll say that as well. So that's really depressing that the teachers succumb to fashion. Um, and then you've got rhetorical curriculum. Um, uh, so you know, if you know if you know Wilson's work on, on ten types of curriculum and rhetorical curriculum that she talks about, um, yeah. So what policymakers say and things that they write in documents. Um, so. It's very, very hard to be the regulator, being the education regulators. An impossible task, really. Ofsted have got such a rock and a hard place there between, because they have to say things, but of course, as soon as they then say things, they are instantly misinterpreted um, and bastardized into all sorts of things. So you've got that kind of uh, people taking snippets of policy documents and writing them down. And then you've got... um, Another quite depressing thing is that some people who are in charge of teaching and learning um, in schools or mats or clusters, uh, they're not, and I mean this with with great affection, of course, but they're not the brightest sparks. 
and you know they will just not bother reading books and there's a lot of that that goes on there's a lot of you know, the number of people I meet who, who tell me what mastering means and think oh god you've just you've just heard a sound bite somewhere Mm. No, and just then, just just to put myself in that camp. I mean, when uh, and listeners will probably know this. When we started the research school, um, and, and I applied to be involved in that, I hadn't really had any great experience of educational research or or reading any particular books, other than you know how to produce an outstanding lesson <laughs> books <laughs> in twenty minutes. So I became very <laughs> I came very adept at doing that, and and became an AST off the back of it. So it was quite interesting. But that's a different conversation. So yeah, and that's I, why. External experts matter, right? You know, mm. the, there are people. You know, I mentioned people earlier, like Sweller and Geary, the Bjorks and Bloom and Gusky. And there are people who their time is able to be spent on finding out really important things. But we then need to read that stuff, and we need to consider it, and we need to think: Does it have an impact? Has it got beyond propositional knowledge? Can it have a real impact in real classrooms? That's a very education is very very guilty of that by taking um, a piece of research that has only been replicated in very specific laboratory conditions has never got beyond propositional knowledge education is really guilty of then saying we'll make this school policy even though there's no evidence it works in real classrooms with real children Um, so and again that's part of that is a fashion thing about wanting to to grip onto things and say, you know, we're ahead of the game here. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's all very... Bloody hell, it's turned into a really depressing conversation now. <laughs> no, uh, no, 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 actually, I mean, it is happy because I can relate to both sides of that in the sense that, you know, when I started off doing the research school and I, I was an absolute novice and, and it showed and I, I put out blogs just because now, well, now I'm an assistant director of a research school, so people are bound to listen to me. I remember the feedback I got originally from people at the EF and they won't mind me saying this. It was just this, this is, you know, absolute nonsense and you can't be writing things like this. You need to actually invest the time and effort to read these before you put something out to people just because you've read, I'm trying to think of an example, cognitive load theory, let's say, for example, you can't just then pontificate about how you think this should be applied because you've read you know an abstract of one paper and suddenly yeah. you're putting this out there so there is an amount of you know professional development and reprofessionalization of teachers to make sure that you actually understand what it is you're talking about before you start to one implement it yourself or two even think about telling everybody else how to do it yeah and don't you think also like when, when i was a young teacher part of it is structural um there's a structural problem that's causing this. Like, don't you think as a young teacher, you didn't, first of all, there wasn't an expectation on you to read research and evidence, but also there was, it wasn't a part of your job. There was no time on your, on your working week that was researching education and reading about education. I always thought that was very odd when I came into teaching. Um, I remember having, uh, and nearly getting sacked, um, as I quite often did, um, I remember having a really fierce row with uh, my boss, the head of maths, because I didn't mark books. And he just went like ape about the fact you don't mark any of your books. That's why I prefer to spend my time reading about education and learning about this profession and learning what I'm supposed to be doing than marking books. And yeah, it was, it's a very odd thing where the amount of time that teachers have, ignore the whole 
1,265 hours bollocks. I mean, nobody works there. Um, but if you do take the real amount of time that teachers are using on their jobs, the last TALIS report said that teachers are using around about 24 hours per week on non-teaching activities. But then when you drill into those non-teaching activities, they're all just superficial crap. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not about... There's, teachers don't report back to you, there's five hours of my working week where I am required to read books and learn about my profession. Um, and that's a that's an odd thing in a profession to not be expected to to continue to learn all the way through it. Mm. So there's there are structural things there as well. And you know, I don't see I don't know why schools don't put on their timetables chunks of time that says teacher research or you know, read some books, goddammit. You know, mm. this there are bits on there where you could do that. And then of course you have to have the conversation. Okay, well, we're quite tired at the moment a lot going on what things do you want us to drop in those five hours a week where we are reading research well there's loads you could drop stop marking books for a start and stop stop putting meaningless data into computers that's never used for anything and you know there's just tons and tons and tons of completely pointless activities that teachers are asked to do and most of it you could drop if 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 your time was spent on you know, what's an average teacher to teach is like 22 hours per week. So there's 22 hours. If you just work a normal 40-hour week and your other half of your week was spent on thinking about pedagogic choice, thinking about the didactics of your subject and reading about how to be a better teacher, if that's all the other stuff you did, everything would be fine. Stop writing reports, stop marking books, stop doing admin. None of it matters. None of it impacts on teachers in anywhere near the way that becoming a learned teacher could mm. so you know this I, you know, I, I was quite I was quite harsh a moment ago about saying you know, people don't read books but I, I want to backtrack slightly on that and give the give that reason for it that it's not an expectation so partly it is that people don't read books but partly it's because the system doesn't expect it of us and and it should and it should make time for it, and there's no reason why it can't make time for it. No, and I mean, my point was really that it wasn't an expectation, certainly in the early years of, of my career. And I think back to times when, you know, the school that I was working at, it's no longer a school, so I'm not, in, I'm not getting anybody in trouble for saying this, but um, I was put in charge. I was the head of ICT. Now, I mean, the, 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 the sort of job description for me being the head of ICT was that, well, he's a pretty good teacher and most people be A for him, so he'll be okay as the head of ICT. He can teach ICT and be in charge. And I've never, I mean, those poor children um, being taught by me uh, of ICT of how to design programs, I mean, I barely knew where the on button was. So there wasn't an expectation to try and develop in that sense because it was, well, if you're a good teacher, and like you said at the outset, if your pedagogy is right, then it won't really matter whether you have any knowledge. And, and if he wants to turn it to a positive, I've seen such a massive development in terms of the reprofessionalization of teachers, as I said a moment ago, that a lot of teachers that I know are actively going out and reading, are involved in, you know, conferences or going to listen to people. They are involved in social media for the good reasons of trying to get to, you know, improving their subject knowledge, for example, and subject associations and chartered colleges and all this sort of thing. So I am seeing signs of that. But I, I do, I can hear, I mean, my science department don't listen to this, Mark. So, you know, they, get, they hear enough of me as it is. They don't listen to me at the weekends or after school. But their argument is usually with me is usually, well, it's all right for you because you want to teach three days a week. So you've got loads of time to do that. 
And my answer to that is always, well, yeah, but I did teach a full-time table for the best part of 18 years. So I do, I do have some idea of what that's like. Yeah. And if you are doing a full-time table and you're teaching 22 hours a week, you've still got another load of hours left, right? Mm. The, the real argument isn't that there isn't enough time because we're doing a full teaching timetable. It's because in the rest of the time where I'm not in front of children teaching, I'm required to do nonsense. So let's just stop asking teachers to do nonsense. If it doesn't have an impact on a pupil learning your discipline, stop doing it mm. and spend that time doing something more interesting instead. Spend that time becoming a better teacher. And that truly will have an impact on, on children. I, I don't think there is a single ingredient that has a greater impact than teacher quality. So the higher you can raise your expertise as a teacher, um, the better for everyone involved. Mm. And no one's really going to suffer because you didn't do some meaningless piece of admin. No, definitely. Definitely not. And I mean, <laughs> I was just going to say a positive thing about the school that I currently work at. Um, we do have, and uh, we're very lucky to have 100 minutes, which is one of our periods of enhanced CPD time where we can do exactly that. So enhanced CPD does involve reading around the subject or developing subject knowledge or doing a professional qualification, whatever it is. So we are extremely fortunate that we have that, and I know that some other schools do as well. Uh, Mark, I'm just conscious of your time, so I'm looking, if I can do it, just a couple more if that's okay. Yeah, yeah. So um, back to the chapter, so part part five, sorry, on phasing learning. So um, I suppose the question is, how do you go about phasing learning in a mastery approach? Uh, so I, uh, you've got this cycle, and then in each of these teaching episodes, I also propose that um, we think about the journey from novice to expert. Uh, and and, and I've, I've got this structure that I have in the book uh, and I use a lot this teach do practice behave structure um, and the reason I have those phases is because I, I want to I want teachers to really notice that on the journey from novice to expert you do pass through phases of enlightenment it's not all just one thing there are different things going on which means you have to do different activities um, so the way in which I phase these episodes is is to start off with a teach phase where you've got this instruction, the kind of stuff I was talking about earlier, such, such that every child makes meaning. You have a do phase where the children replicate, and that's about you picking up, did they make meaning? Did they understand what I was saying there? Um, and we do lots of that, lots of interactions between teaching and doing to make sure we're tweaking our models, metaphors, examples, make sure we're twe tweaking our instruction to pick up every child. And we do that for a period of time. Um, and the children are doing lots of problems and tasks in those phases, those two phases. Uh, and my experience of being a young teacher was that's where teaching kind of ended, that you did teaching and doing. The teacher taught something, kids did it. In other words, performance. Performance was, was, was what I was sharing on my teacher training, make the children perform. But it was really obvious that it doesn't lead to anything. You know, you'd hear the year 10 teacher saying, I'm teaching children how to add fractions this week. You think, well, you taught them that in year 9 and year 8 and year 7 and year 6 and year 5 and year 4. So what the hell is that all about? Why are you still teaching them that exact same thing? And, of course, it's because they weren't taught it. They were just performing that thing at that time. Um, so then what I introduce in this, in this phasing model is teaching and doing is not enough getting the children to be able to perform is not enough so then i introduced this practice phase um, 
these words are just words I chose, teach, do, practice, behave. I think they kind of work. Some people hate them, but I don't really care. Um, so <laughs> you had to, had to choose four words, so I chose four words. Uh, the practice phase is about, okay, now that they can do, now that they have technique, they're able to do something technical, let's then do interesting things with those techniques. Let's use them uh, in, in their full range, their full range of ways such uh, such that what we're doing is going to lead to file transfer. So the practice phase is I've got them to be able to perform, now I need to do a load of interesting things that we know lead to first time, uh, first of all long-term memory and the ability to transfer onto non-isomorphic problems. Um, so we go through this practice phase. If you can do all of that, if you can get them technical, so to be able to you know, do the, the work and you can get them to the point in the practice phase where they are fluent and they're able to use uh, these problems like um, like tools on these isomorphic problems in time and you're concentrating on teaching for memory. What that leads to, I think, is that later down the line with that idea you were teaching and a bunch of other ideas that have come along subsequently is that you'll then be able to behave with those ideas. So in my subject, is behave mathematically, behave like a mathematician. So you'll be able to pull together lots and lots of different mathematical ideas from the past and use them like a toolkit on problems that you're trying to address now at this point in the future. Um, so that, that phasing of teach, do, practice, behave is, is what I talk about in the final section of the book and how you might structure that phase those phases um, in a very practical way. I think well, I, I hoped that part five of the book was a very practical part of saying this is how you could structure um, this high-level idea of a mastery cycle. Um, that's what I wanted to try to achieve that uh, in that part. And maybe I've been successful in some aspects of that. Maybe I haven't in others. Um, but the, the feedback from teachers is it, it makes a lot of sense, that phasing. And, and it's a way of pulling yourself up as a teacher to say, look, you're not done yet. Just because you told them something, that doesn't mean they know it. Just because they can regurgitate it in front of you right now, that still doesn't mean they know it. There's more to do. Uh, and that's why I wanted to popularize that idea of phasing learning episodes um, so you get to the point of expertise. Mm. And it's it a hard thing to describe but i was going to say it, it's it is a hard thing to describe and you, and you described it brilliantly uh, as you do but what's even better in the book when listeners buy the book and listeners probably some of the listeners already have the book is that you've got a very um interactive diagram with it as well in terms of it's color coded and how it looks and i found that really useful yeah and, and when I, when i'm giving talks about phasing of learning that's having that cue of, of, of the graphical um, way of looking at it. A lot of people find that, that really helpful. So that's why I included that in there. Um, also, having it as a graphic means that you can completely ignore, uh, I don't know if you've noticed this in, in those graphics, but I completely ignore scale. So um, what it allows you to do is say, look, a learning episode is just as long as it is. 
So uh, I don't put on any of these bars. This is one hour. This is three weeks. <laughs> I'm just looking at it now. I hadn't, but that's probably um, the biologist. Just you know, we we just look at things like that, and it's it's, it's roughly that that'll do. If I'd have been a physicist yeah, yeah. or a mathematician, I might have been a bit more accurate. I th- I thought it was a, it's a helpful way of getting away from uh, it being misinterpreted as a lesson. Yes. Uh, you know, it's not sixty minutes and thirty minutes as this and twenty minutes as this. It's just look. This is as long as it takes. And these are broadly the proportions um, of time that, of, of, of the full learning episode you'd spend on each of these. Um, no, so yeah, that's 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 my approach to phasing in those four different ways. Brilliant, brilliant. Right, Mark. So it's the last the last bit now. So into part six. So uh, I know you said before that people have asked you to sum up the book in a pithy sentence, and you can't necessarily do that. But perhaps you could just share with listeners what conclusions you drew from the process of writing the book, and from maybe what feedback you've had about it so far. Um, yeah, I'm definitely not going to sum the book up. Uh, but I, 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 yeah, I've I've written stuff for a long time. I write just to talk to myself, basically. Uh, which I know sounds a bit odd, um, but that, that is the reason I write. That's the reason this book exists. It's just me having a conversation with myself, trying to test some of the things that I'm thinking. And I find that articulation is really important. For, you know, human beings articulating, telling their stories um, out loud or on paper brings about new revelations. So the reason I write was that you might think you think something, but once you articulate it verbally or, or in writing, it, it's very often very different to what you thought. So I was trying to test, um, are my beliefs really what I, what I feel they are? Um, and, and by writing this, I realized that um, some of those influences that I had on me genuinely were important in keeping me in this, in this domain, in, in the education domain. Um, I realized that uh, I always I always sort of felt, particularly because I came from industry into teaching, I always felt that one of the greatest things about being an educator, being a teacher, is that you know, we don't make sprockets in a sprocket factory. Um, our, our job is, is working with real human beings. And it's, you know, it's a pursuit of improving humanity is what we do. And I like that emotional side of it, and I like that it's values based, and I like that the reason we do, you know, the reason we are teachers, is is fundamentally emotional. Um, and this writing this reminded me that the re- that I absolutely adore education and teaching and the process of learning. I'm I'm, I'm just in love with the whole thing, uh, and you don't feel that in other other jobs and other industries. So writing this reminded me of that, which I, I thought was really, really nice thing to do. It, it made me think as well that it's never over, which I love. I, I, I love that you know, the whole point of mastery is you, you don't master things in mastery. You just become more and more expertise and you can always become more expertise. And looking at the work that, if you look at the stuff that Wardenburg wrote in the 1910s, that Carlton wrote in the 1920s, and their aspirations of things they were trying to find out. And then you see stuff like John B. Carroll in the 60s and 70s finding those things out. But he still had aspirations of, I wish we could find these things out. And then you see Bjork finding stuff out. And then you see 
Sweller finding things out and so on and so on. I like that the canon that is um, all of the knowledge we have about how to make someone learn it, how to how to educate. I love that that canon continues to grow and is, is being contributed to. Um, and I, I liked I liked reading <laughs> rather than write because when I write, I write really really quickly. Um, so I don't really take in what I'm writing as I'm doing it. Um, but I liked reading this book uh, and realizing, oh, man, I used to be really thick. Uh, you know, some of the things I thought 20 years ago. So that must mean that I'm really thick now. That, that has to be the conclusion of it, right? It's got to be that if in 20 years I'm looking back now on stuff from 20 years ago and thinking, God, you were naive then, it must be if all goes well, it must be that in 20 years I'll look back on me of today and think, oh, you were so naive then and so much new stuff has come along. And I love that. I love the idea that there's still loads and loads and loads to learn. Um, and, you know, feedback from from the book has, has been very kind and lots of people said very kind things about it. But I've also had some people write to me and say, Oh, you've got this wrong. You're, you know, this is this is wrong. You're, you're you've been stupid on this. You've been naive on that. I love that. I, I really do. As you know, in a professional way, got some people that write to me and say you're a dick, but you say, oh well, I don't, I don't really care about you. You know, criticize everything that you want to criticize, but bring some intellect to the table when you're doing it. And there's been several people, people I respect, people who are a lot older than me, have written to me and said. I get why you think that, but what you're going to find out is, and I like that because then it's like an adventure, right? It's, it's at some point there's going to be some stuff where I realize why I'm wrong on these things. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what I get out of it. I think, but yeah, reaffirming my love of learning. That's what I get out of it. Well, that, that's a fantastic place to, to finish that part of the conversation. Um, just a last little bit, Mark. So in terms of, Obviously, the book's available um, at the moment. Is, are you doing any? Are you out speaking about this, or are you just working with individual schools? Where where can listeners see you next? Uh, so yeah, I'm out talking about this a lot. Um, 29th, I think it's the 29th of September. I'm doing um, a five hour talk on mastery. If anyone wants to come along to that, it's going to be in London. It's free to come along to. I occasionally do these mastery talks around the country. Um, we've got a load of those lined up for the coming year, but I don't know the dates. Um, and that's like an introduction to mastery and what it means and laying out the case for mastery. But then immediately after, the week after, so the first week of October, I'm touring the country. So I will be in every governmental region, all nine governmental regions at some point. Um, and I will be um, doing a thing called um, Mastery in Depth, I think we've called it. Because one of the things that people have asked me about uh, after this book or after hearing me talk about mastery is to go really in-depth into a, into a bunch of individual lessons. So I'm going to talk about four actual lessons and what they would look like, four, four learning episodes, and outline what the whole thing would look like. So that's really for people that have either read the book or have, have heard the first mastery talk um, because it's, it's a much more detailed exploration of mastery. Um, so that's happening start of October. Um, and then we, uh, so LaSalle, we've got 160 dates planned for the new academic year. 
Um, many of them are me talking. Some of them are um, uh, Johnny and Chris um, out there talking as well. And then I'm doing a load of um, research ed events as well, though too many of them for me to remember which ones I'm doing. <laughs> I, I appear to be doing a heck of a lot of research ed um, events in the coming academic year as well. Excellent. So yeah, I'm uh, out and about if people want to come and listen to me talk nonsense. No, and absolutely will. And um, I'll put links to all of that on on the uh, the show notes at the beginning. So uh, it just remains to say, I've I really, really enjoyed speaking to you, Mark, this afternoon. So thank you for your time. It's been an absolute privilege to speak to you. And um, hopefully one of those research ed events is uh, Research Ed Blackpool. I think it's in the diary, yeah, I think so. <laughs> so I'll be returning. I well, I'm going to say it's certainly in ours, so let's hope, it's, <laughs> let's hope it's in yours. No, thanks again, Mark. Really, really appreciate it. Very welcome, Phil. Thanks for asking me on. Thank you. Wow, what an interview there with Mark, and such a privilege, as I said on the podcast, to speak to Mark and his insights are fantastic. I learn something every single time I either listen to him or, in this case, speak to him. So thank you again, Mark. Much appreciated. Moving into the shameless plug section, and coming up on the podcast, we have two absolutely fantastic summer specials. So we have Emma Turner on New Ed and Books Fizz, interestingly, for listeners. So uh, the certain demographic of you will understand the reference there. And I've also got Kat Howard, and she's talking about her new book, which is Stop Talking About Wellbeing, which will be out in January next year. I've also got to have a conversation tomorrow with Ross Morrison McGill about his book, Just Great Teaching, and the continued success of Teacher Toolkit. So in the last bit of the shameless plug section, it just remains to say that um, you can still become a patron of the podcast if you're interested. So if you head on over to my website, which is www.nailersnatter.co.uk and follow the links to the Patreon page on there. So once again, thank you very much for listening. And if anybody would be interested in either sending in a question or coming onto the podcast, then contact me via Twitter, which is at PNA1977 or through the website, which I mentioned earlier. Once again, thank you for listening and see you next time. Miller's Natter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Miller's Natter, just talking to teachers.